Hey everyone, welcome to our very final session in our study of Mark. 24 sessions altogether, I believe, which has been a bit of a marathon uh, in terms of the preparation and in terms of you studying and working through this nearly half a year. In fact, could it be a half? Yeah, practically half a year of studying one book of the Bible. I sincerely hope that this has been a time of unpacking the gospel in a way that helps you to really see Jesus um, more fully. And I pray that this revelation has led to a response because as we have studied, revelation requires a response. How has your life changed through this series? Maybe share that with your lift group. I think that one of the weeks there is a discussion question around that as well. Uh, but I sincerely hope that you have been encouraged, challenged, as I have been challenged in studying this as well. Well, we're in the final two chapters of Mark and it does cover the crucifixion and resurrection. There's a fair bit to cover. And so I'm going to dive straight into this. Verse 1 of Mark chapter 15. Very early in the morning, the chief priests and the elders and the teachers of the law and the whole Sanhedrin made their plans. So they bound Jesus, led him away and handed him over to Pilate. The reason why they needed to go to Pilate, the Roman governor, is because the Romans had instituted a ban on um, the Jewish leaders being able to carry out capital punishment, which is what they were seeking out for Jesus. I'd like to point out that the religious leaders were so concerned with holding power. But isn't it interesting that they themselves, they, they were subject to even another form of human authority. Uh, obviously, they didn't like it, but there was still this sense of being uh, subjugated to other authorities. And that is something that just happens in all of our lives. Whether we like it or not, even if you are you know, really high up in authority, there's always other authorities that you have to listen to. It is just a part of our human existence. When we are desiring to be in control, we need to understand that we never fully are. Trusting God is not about losing control, but it's actually coming under a stable authority. Whose authority are you living under? Anyway, let's continue. Verse 2, are you the king of the Jews? Asked Pilate. You have said so, Jesus replied. The chief priests accused him of many things. So again, Pilate asked, aren't you going to answer? See how many things they are accusing you of. The religious leaders had planned a case against Jesus, but we see signs here that the many accusations point towards a really flimsy prosecution. Pilate could see right through this um, a prosecution and, and he was, in uh, verse 5 it says, But Jesus still made no reply and Pilate was amazed. He was amazed that with such a flimsy prosecution, Jesus was, as Jesus had said, giving his life over to this prosecution, to this torture, to uh, this whole process. It was Jesus' will that this was being carried out. Verse 6, Now is the custom at the festival to release a prisoner whom the people requested. A man called Barabbas was in prison with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the uprising. The crowd came up and asked Pilate to do for them what he usually did. 
Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? Asked Pilate, knowing it was out of self-interest that the chief priests had handed Jesus over to him. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have Pilate release Barabbas instead. What shall I do then with the one you call the king of the Jews? Pilate asked them. Crucify him, they shouted. Why? What crime has he committed? Asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, crucify him. Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. This is actually a really interesting parallel here. The sinner is released and the sinless is crucified. Barabbas symbolizes each and every one of us. We are the ones that live in rebellion, hurting the people around us. We are the ones that deserve death. But there is this divine exchange where the Son of God takes our place. Don't get so familiar with this story that this doesn't hit home. I am Barabbas, you are Barabbas, and we are free because Jesus took my place. Interestingly, the name Barabbas actually means son of Abba or son of the father. We were never abandoned by the father. We were always the children of the father. Our rebellion takes us away from God. But Jesus, our oldest brother in the family of God, enables us to once again be reunited with God. We are being brought back into the original design of sonship and daughtership through what Jesus has done. This is a powerful exchange that is symbolized in this uh, little part of the scripture that we're reading today. How do you see this exchange? Do you understand the significance and the power of what Jesus was doing? It is a huge part of our gospel and our faith. And it's something that I hope that whenever you read or, or come in contact with it, it does still make you go, wow, God. Verse 16, the soldiers led Jesus away to, into the palace, that is the praetorium, and called together the whole company of soldiers. They put a purple robe on him, then twisted a crown of thorns and set it on him. And they began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews! Again and again, they struck him on the head with a staff and spit on him. Falling on their knees, they paid homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they took off the purple robe and put on his own clothes on him. They led him out to crucify him. This treatment of Jesus was prophesied in Isaiah chapter 50, the suffering servant. Jesus went through all of this to serve us, to bring redemption to us. Verse 21, a certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way in from the country, and they forced him to carry the cross. And, and, and who, who's this Simon? Uh, he's probably a Jew, and he had come to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover, and it mentions that he's the father of Alexander and Rufus. More than likely, Alexander and Rufus was known to the early church, and this was a way of... of, of Peter as the preacher and Mark as the, the writer of this gospel, uh, indicating to the audience that, hey, these things actually happen and real people, real eyewitness, eyewitnesses to uh, this crucifixion are still alive today or you would have known them while they were alive. 
And, and so there's just a, a bit of a note that when, when uh, th these Gospels were written very close to the actual events. So the fact that we don't have lots of literature opposing these accounts because they are falsified, uh, there aren't. There aren't any records, historical records of people opposing these Gospels, which lend to the authenticity, to their realness uh, in terms of how they recorded these events. Verse 22, they brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. The place of the skull in Latin is, I don't know if I'm going to pronounce this right, but it's Calvarea locus. And this is where we get the term Calvary from. Calvary is the word that we use to remember where Jesus is crucified. Calvary, the place of Jesus' sacrifice. This is where it's from. Verse 23, they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him, dividing up his clothes. They cast lots to see what each would get. This is a fulfillment of a messianic psalm, uh, Psalm 22. I do suggest that as, um, as a live group together, that this is a moment to, to uh, have communion together, reading through Psalm 22. It portrays the suffering Jesus uh, went through in this moment, all, all that had to take place as he fulfilled the plans of God. Um, while for the purposes of this message we don't have time to go into uh, all that crucifixion actually means uh, we do talk about it quite often in our Easter messages uh, just note it is an extremely cruel death that Jesus was facing uh, in the coming verses you, if, if you do want to dive into this there's lots of resources out there explaining uh, what crucifixion does to the human body the excruciating pain that Jesus was about to face verse 25 it was nine in the morning when they crucified him the written notice of the charge against him read the king of the Jews meant to be ironic meant to always be humiliating but it's actually true which is kind of interesting this whole uh, aspect of, of all the mockery and all of that but the trueness of it as well it, is, it just paints such a surreal picture of what Jesus had to go through at verse 27 they crucified two rebels with him one on his right and one on his left uh, just a quick note that some commentators believe that these two rebels were probably associates of uh, Barabbas you know, there is this sense of the great exchange that Jesus brings for us as much as it is available for every single human being. Not all is going to receive this salvation. It, it does depend on us responding to Jesus. Uh, those who pass by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, So you are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days? Come on down from the cross and save yourself. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him amongst themselves. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let this Messiah, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. Even when faced with death, Jesus continues to be abused. Interestingly, they took aim at one of the uh, things that Jesus said about destroying the temple and rebuilding it in three days. Jesus always meant that that prophecy was about him, the body, his body and his life as a temple of God. And, and, and he was saying that this is going to be destroyed and in three days it would rise from the dead. It was a, a prophetic declaration about uh, his crucifixion and his uh, resurrection. So him staying on the cross is actually fulfilling the prophecy. 
But in another way as well, uh, he is actually destroying the temple, the physical temple, because he is the ultimate sacrifice that then takes away the purposes of the physical temple. The physical temple has no purpose because Jesus supersedes and fulfills all that the, uh, the temple is meant to represent, that place of sacrifice in order that human, being can, uh, human beings can now be in relationship with God. And we're going to see a part of that in just a few moments as well. Uh, uh, but, but Jesus is, is doing so much more by staying on the cross than the people mocking him knew. And isn't that interesting that sometimes we think that we know better, we know more than God. We're saying, God, get with the program and go according to my plans and my purposes and what I'm trying to accomplish here. God, you know, is a good plan when God is actually doing something that sometimes we don't understand. And it seems counterintuitive how Jesus, how uh, he's working out the plans and the purposes of God through ways that we just can't understand. This just helps me to, to remember that my faith in God is not based on whether it makes sense, but in trusting that God knows better than I do. Verse 33, At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And that is uh, actually the first, verses, uh, the first verse in Psalm 22. In verse 35, it goes on, When some of those standing near heard this, they said, Listen, he's calling Elijah, because... Eloi, Eloi is actually the Aramaic in the Hebrew is actually Eli, Eli, uh, which obviously sounds like Elijah. Verse 36, someone ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a staff and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, Surely this man is the Son of God. The temple curtain being torn from top to bottom indicates that it was an act of God. The curtain was probably about nine meters tall really high curtain. And, and top to bottom is it, 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 this God came and just ripped it like, like a tissue paper, really. And, and the curtain separated the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple. It was a space that only the high priest was able to enter and only once a year on the Day of Atonement. And this ripping of the curtain was a sign that the separation between God and humanity because of sin is now being completely removed. We get to now all enjoy the presence of God. This is the, the destruction of the, the, the need for the temple, the destruction for this symbolic acts that would then uh, render us holy to be able to enter into God's presence. Jesus allows each and every one of us to come into God's presence through His sacrifice. Can I just make a quick note that God's presence is not something that in all of history was enjoyed the way that we get to enjoy. Uh, 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 it, it was something that was uh, mediated by all that was taking place and sacrifice and, 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 and all that needed to take place according to the Mosaic law. Uh, and 
But now we get to experience God's presence on a daily basis in a very close, intimate way. Let us not get familiar with this. Let us really treasure and value the presence of God. The cost for us to have this relationship with God was the death of Jesus. Verse 41, some women were watching from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James the younger, and of Joseph, and Salome. In Galilee, these women had followed him and cared for his needs. Many other women who had come up with him to Jerusalem were also there. The significance of this little uh, bit that I've just read can be lost because of culture. We see three women being named as witnesses to Jesus' death. In that culture, in that day and age, you needed three witnesses to establish the truth of any account. You can't just have one person going around saying, this happened. No, no, no. It needed to be then corroborated by at least two other people, three witnesses together. However, in that culture, women were not allowed to be witnesses. They weren't. It, it, it was part of that day and age. But yet God chooses three women to be witnesses to the most significant moment in history. The establishment of Christianity as we know it was because of the testimony of three women. Wow, as much as the Bible occurred in patriarchal society uh, where women's rights were not established and that is reflected in some of the practices and some of the things that took place in the Bible, we find that the Bible does shift the narrative on the place of women in society. In other words, for the people reading this account in that day and age, you could say that the Bible is a feminist document in the sense that it gave equal rights to both men and women. Women are now able to be witnesses in God's eyes. That was a massive shift in those days. Verse 42, it was preparation day, that is the day before the Sabbath. So as evening, so as evening approached, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the council, the Jewish council, uh, he was one of the religious leaders who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, went boldly to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Being of the Jewish council, associating himself with Jesus was actually a really dangerous act. He did not know how this was going to compromise his position on the council. It could even possibly uh, lead to him being persecuted himself, maybe even death, I'm not sure. Uh, but, but to be associated with a blasphemer to, uh, was, was a hugely dangerous thing that Joseph was doing. Uh, verse 44, Pilate was surprised to hear that he had already died. Summoning the centurion, he asked him if Jesus had already died. When he learned from the centurion that it was so, he gave the body to Joseph. So Joseph brought some linen cloth, took the body, wrapped it in the linen, and placed it in a tomb cut out of a rock. Then he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. And then we go on to Mark 16. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they may go uh, anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb and they asked each other, who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had already been rolled away. 
As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You're looking for Jesus, the Nazarene who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where you laid him. But go tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. Again, we find the women are the witnesses, not just of the death, but of the resurrection. Powerful, powerful things. Uh, awesome, isn't it? That uh, um, the place of women, uh, the importance of women in the gospel account. Um, now, very interestingly, the earliest manuscripts actually finish in verse 8. Verse 9 to 20 were not in uh, the oldest manuscripts that we have as historical records. However, verses 9 to 20 appear in over 95% of the historical manuscripts that we have. And, and so because of that, mainly, uh, it, it is included in our modern translations. Just going to read it through quickly. Uh, verse 9 to 20. When Jesus rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had driven seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him and who were mourning and weeping. When they heard that Jesus was alive and that she had seen him, they did not believe it. Afterward, Jesus appeared in a different form to two of them while they were walking in the country. These returned and reported to the rest, but they did not believe it either. Later, Jesus appeared to the eleven, not twelve because of what happened to Judas um, as they were eating. He rebuked them for their lack of faith and their stubborn refusal to believe those who had seen him after he had risen. He said to them, go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name they will drive out demons, they will speak in new tongues, they will pick up snakes with their hands, and when they drink deadly poison, it will not hurt them at all. They will place their hands on sick people and they will get well. After the Lord Jesus had spoken to them, he was taken up into heaven and he sat at the right hand of God. Then the disciples went out and preached everywhere, and the Lord worked with them and confirmed His word by the signs that accompanied it. So we find that Jesus continues to appear to His disciples, showing them that His resurrection is real. They took some time to wrestle with this. And then finally, they believe and, and they're given the great commission to go out into the older world and preach the gospel with the accompaniment of signs. And, um, you know, the, the story continues with us as modern day believers. With all that we've witnessed in this gospel as well as the rest of the Bible, how are we going to respond? Are we going to walk in the commissioning and the authority that Jesus has given to us? Are we going to live differently because of Jesus? I sincerely hope so. I think that without responding appropriately uh, in a missional sense that God is calling us to reach the world, we don't actually fully understand the gospel. We are not really responding to the gospel. Uh, the, the receiving of the gospel necessarily means that we will then bring the gospel wherever we go. Can I just pray as we finish off this series? And can I pray that God will move in your life, that, that you will carry the gospel wherever you go, and, and when you do, you'll be accompanied by signs and wonders. What an amazing thought that we get to carry on what the early church did. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, I pray that as we learn about 
uh, your, your life, your death, your resurrection, that it resounds and it does something inside of us. I pray that there will be a stirring that you are calling us, commissioning us and giving us authority to carry the gospel wherever we go. And I pray that as we do so, that we will see signs and wonders. We will see other people's lives being transformed as we carry your truth wherever we go. We thank you, Jesus, for such a privilege. We thank you for the great exchange that took place on that cross. That even though we deserve death, you took that death that we can have life. We thank you, Jesus, and we pray this in your name. Amen. Thanks so much for sticking through this series. Get into your lift groups for the last time in this, in this study. I pray that you'll be blessed in the discussion. Mm-hmm.